Hi, Kirby. Hi, Sarah. Welcome, Welcome to, to Los Angeles. Welcome, Glamgelinos. We hope you stay a while. <laughs> cute. That's cute. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Kirby, I could literally take a kayak and ride it down the street right now. Is your street flooded? Yeah, there's like a steady stream of water. Wow. What is going on? (laughs) So we're almost out of a drought, if you weren't aware. We're very excited about this. Are we though? I thought it was going to take like three years. No, it says that like the, the amount of rain that we've received is getting us out of a drought. Well, thank God for that. Kirby, have you experienced this much rain since living in LA? No, not at all. Did not sign up for this. Not at all. What is Quinn doing? Quinn just loves to sleep and be in the bed, so she's fine. She is living her best life. She lays on Patrick. If we didn't force her to go outside, she wouldn't. Yeah. She would just like hold it. Yeah. She, she, we have a little, okay, so we have a little pee pad in the event of emergency, but Patrick does take her out, but literally she pops a squat and then runs back to the gate to be inside. Well, at least she does that. I know some dogs who like can't. There's an image going around. (laughs) It's. Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story, (laughs) where she's bawling and like staring off into space. And it says, it's still raining in Los Angeles. That's how I feel. It's still raining. Oh my God. We don't accept it structurally and we don't accept it spiritually. I love the the LA rain bingo card. I've almost checked all of them off. Flooding in the house? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Lost power? Kirby lost power. I lost power. The day of the globes? I was praying for you. It was a torrential downpour in the morning. And I'm thinking, how are we going to get there and not be soaking wet? Luckily, it cleared up by the time we got to the Beverly Hilton. But they didn't account for sideways rain. So they had the tents, but they didn't have the sides covered. So they were vacuuming up water on the gray carpet before everybody got there because it was soaking wet. My feet were so cold. No. I was wearing heels. And first of all, they had us herded in there like cattle. So it was an extremely tight fit. And then standing on my heels for four or five hours when it's cold outside and in the sopping, soggy carpet. Not a good vibe, but still fun. Everyone thinks that the red carpet is so glam. No, it's miserable. But you made it look extremely glam. You looked beautiful, loved the dress, the makeup, the hair. And you were right behind Laverne for her E! News. So you got a lot of airtime. I did not think anybody would see me. And then people were texting (laughs) me going, you're directly behind Laverne Cox. Don't do anything weird. You're directly behind her. Yeah, like don't pick your nose. Don't pick your nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Don't be weird. So that was fun. But 
Yeah. Golden Globes. You did such a great job. Thank you. Award season's here, fam. We're living it. Oh, my God. I wonder if it's going to be raining for Critics' Choice tomorrow. It sounds like... Well, I don't know. Where is it? Where is Critics' Choice? I have no idea. No idea at all. But the BAFTA tea, I think, was supposed to be today at the Four Seasons. I think that's where they have it. So I wonder if people have... uh, It's pouring rain outside. I'm looking right now. Insanity. Still raining. Still raining. God, we have so much to talk about this week. Yeah. So no wives. No. Okay. No wives. I feel like everyone setting their intentions for 2023, they were like, let's let's be peaceful and positive. And then everyone was just like, no, I'm pissed. I pissed at everyone. Everyone's mad about everything. And I mean, some of it. Okay, whatever. So why don't we get into the news? Because there's a lot of news. All right, everybody. So last week we covered the Miel Organics internet drama, or more importantly, the TikTok drama featuring it girl Alex Earl. We talked a lot about who Alex Earl is and perhaps why she seems to be getting so much attention, which could be debated for days on end. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, maybe go listen to that. But just the too long didn't listen of it all is she talked about her favorite products on TikTok, something that she bought and purchased herself from Amazon was this Miel Organic Serum for the hair. And people got mad. They got upset, specifically Black women in the community saying, you know, this product was not made for you. Please don't sell it out. And then there became worries that perhaps this brand might get acquired and then the formulation would change. And what all that would mean for specifically the Black community, especially because this product was made for a certain hair type. So lo and behold, (laughs) this week it was announced that Miel Organics has a partnership. They were very, very careful not to say acquisition, a partnership with Procter & Gamble. This kind of made people say, see, we told you. My personal opinion, this has been in the works for a long time. Alex Earl posting on TikTok didn't automatically, you don't make a deal that quickly with Procter & Gamble, okay? Like, imagine, imagine if that was the case. That would be wild, guys. Batshit, actually. (laughs) So we wanted to have someone on here who we trust. She has been in the beauty industry for a very long time, you know, formerly an editor at Allure. Jihan Forbes, how are you, darling? Hi, guys. I'm doing good. I love your perspective on everything. If you're not following her, please follow her on all platforms. But what is your take on this acquisition, first and foremost? Well, my first inclination is to always just be happy. You know, I love Miel, Miel. I call it Miel. Is it Miel or Miel? I never know. I don't know. I It could... Apologies. Yes, apologies if I'm saying it wrong too, but uh, I love the brand. I also love that particular hair oil. I've been using it for a long time. And I remember when it launched, I think it might have been around 2018. But I remember because I was at Allure then <laughs> writing about <laughs> it for the launch. And it's great. And, you know, I think I'm always happy to see 
black owned brands move up in business, you know, get deals and partnerships. Like, you know, we've got like Sephora, which has been, you know, doing their, you know, program with, you know, a lot of up and coming brands. Like I just love to see opportunities for our black business owners in the beauty space. And my first thing is like, oh, cool. Like, isn't this what we asked for in 2020 when, you know, we were all like buy black and you know, let's make sure, you know, our black business owners who are making really amazing stuff also are getting the same kind of opportunities in business as other folks. So that was my initial, my initial reaction to seeing it. But given that it was happening, I think in the wake of all of this TikTok and like social media drama behind, you know, non-black women, you know, using the oil, I was like, okay, here we go. Like, I already know, (laughs) you know, what's coming next. But from what I've seen, I mean, other editors that I've spoken to and, you know, some of my old editor friends still have publications and I'm just like, what do you think? You know, for the most part, people are like, great, that's awesome for my L, like, cool. And, you know, move on. And I think that's because we are coming from a different perspective, you know, like I haven't met the owner of Mayel, but you know, I have in my job in my life. And even now I work with beauty brand owners, you know, like as far as that. So I think there's like a different perspective and a different understanding when you think about, you know, like if something great happened to my brand on TikTok, I'd be like, oh, fantastic. This is a lot of free publicity. We can build like a whole social media campaign around this. We can do this. We can, you know, do that. Like I'm thinking of the way that it would benefit folks. Um, But I think um, a lot of consumers on the other side, you know, who do invest, you know, in these products, invest as in their buying them. I mean, that obviously signals something quite different, I think, to them. Right. Totally. So I have been also obviously following this drama unfold and really, really just interested in what, you know, my Black beauty editor friends have been saying and their feelings. And Amanda Mitchell on my team wrote a newsletter this past week for Refinery. And she was very passionate about the fact that, yes, like this is great news for Miel. Like if you love the product, if it works for your hair and your hair type, like buy it, buy it in bulk, support the brand as much as you can. But she made a point, which I've seen a lot of chatter about on Instagram and Twitter, as well as the idea of, you know, white women going into black beauty supply stores and buying out the product and if they're welcome. What do you think about that whole conversation? I mean, I see the point. Like, I don't disagree with it. There is that, you know, element of it. And, you know, the feeling that there isn't much to choose from out there, at least certainly not as much as white women have to choose from in terms of hair care. I understand all those things. And I I don't think it's an invalid critique of the situation. I mean, yeah, like it must, it would suck to, you know, you go into Target and then all of a sudden they're out of your oil, even though granted there were other places you could get it online. Like at the time when everyone said it was sold out, it was still very much available. You know, maybe you'd have to get it shipped. Maybe you'd have to wait. But for me, I just kind of feel like, and again, I try to take into consideration, like my experience is not everybody's experience. I was an editor. You know, I still am trying to go through the hair products that I had, you know, right after I left, you know, switch jobs. I I don't disagree, but I kind of have a feeling and this might be a little controversial. It's like, okay, then use something else. Cause there isn't as much, but there are options out there and certainly more options than there ever used to be before. 
And all the time, I'm like, still to this day, I'm getting emails. Oh, this is a new brand that's coming out. There's there's this, that, and the third. At one point, Mael was a new brand, right, coming out, you know? And at another point, it was uh, TGIN, which is also available. We're always going through different cycles because people are seeing the whole thing with Shea Moisture, how, you know, they changed their formulas after they sold but like, these are valid concerns, but you know, for me, I'm thinking, okay, so what did you do after Shea Moisture sold? You found something else, you know? And maybe it's because of the overabundance <laughs> of products that I've had to try out, not just from hair care brands that are like specifically for textured hair, but from brands that didn't even know that this stuff would work for me. And it does. So my point is that there's still things out there. You might have to take another look. But I feel like in the grand scheme of things, I think it's an overall win for the brand. It's an overall win for what we were pleading for in 2020. It's expensive to be in stores and it's expensive to run a business, especially independently. Like people don't sell their businesses for nothing. And sometimes you want more access. Sometimes you want to be able to produce more. And you can't necessarily do that unless you have that support from a larger company, like it happens all the time. So it's like, is the message now that black beauty brands should for an overall social signaling or for the good of the community, whatever you think that is, if you agree, should they not be selling to other brands? Just stick it out, do whatever. I just don't think it's fair to limit black beauty brand owners in that way. Yeah. And you mentioned this on Twitter. You did say, you know, if you are a brand owner, you are only allowed to go so far, meaning a black brand owner. Is that kind of how you've been feeling with the situation overall? Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, well, formulas change all the time. Like brands just change their formulas just because it's Tuesday, you know, or (laughs) it just got too expensive to use Right. Supply chain issues, ingredients, access. Yeah. All of that stuff. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. But I understand if you don't have that kind of mindset, if you haven't been in like in the industry, industry adjacent, whatever, you're not thinking about these things. You're thinking, dang, now I got to go buy another hair oil. And that's totally fine. But I promise there's something out there. (laughs) It's not going to be the same, but like, it's a tough situation because, you know, there's good and then there, there is positive and there is negative. I think it's about one waiting to see what happens because you don't know what's going to happen yet. Granted, history says one thing, whatever. You don't know what's going to happen in this particular situation yet. And I don't believe in getting pre upset. (laughs) Like (laughs) life is hard enough. Like why raise your blood pressure over this? You know, when at the end of the day, like the black woman is winning, you know, and so are her black employees. Like that's where my mind goes. That's how I think Sarah and I felt. It's very much two things can be true at once. Right. It can be a negative thing to feel like something that was made for you is going to be taken away from you when there is another group of people that have endless types of products to choose from, right? Like we understand that at the core, but my issue was this is a black brand owner (laughs) making products for textured hair that by succeeding would be able to get more inventory, perhaps more accessibility for people, Mm -hmm. right? And I really didn't like having people say that they wanted to leave a bad review to keep people from buying it. 
Right. That was my thing, too, where I was like, OK, well, now you're just doing harm. Like you're leaving right. negative reviews like that seems super petty and unnecessary. Exactly. Is there anything that you want to share with the people listening to this podcast about like, I mean, because I always think of it from a consumer standpoint, right? And I'm thinking Alex Earl is not a beauty editor or expert. So if she's going to, you know, get served an ad on Amazon, that's where she found this product. She's probably not going deep into who made it and what the brand stands for. And she's just like, oh, it's supposed to help my hair grow. It's supposed to change my hair. Okay, great. I'm going to buy this. So like, do you have any suggestions for people on what they can be doing to be a better consumer? I mean, that's the thing. Like, I can't tell you not to buy. I don't want to tell you don't buy from this black owned hair brand because the products aren't quote unquote meant for you, even if it does work for you. Because on the one hand, I'm like, hmm, like that's taking money away from something I very much believe in for, you know, some kind of social signaling, which I understand. But to me personally, it's not, it's not a, a blow to the point where I'm just like, oh, what am I, I'm probably going to get dragged. Let's say worst case scenario, the formula does change. You can find another hair oil. I'm sorry. It's literally yeah. like, that is coming from me as somebody who has like 10 hair oils right now that, you know, and my L is my favorite one. That's my favorite one. But, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, I want to see black people, especially black women with businesses. We are the fastest growing group of business owners, you know, small business owners. I want to see them succeed. So that is my the always going to be in my mind. Look, I can't tell you what to buy. I can't tell you what not to buy. If you want to abstain from buying because you feel, you know, as if it's not your place to deprive or uh, cause scarcity of a certain product, then free to do that. If you're just like, I don't care, I want to try it. And I'm also getting a black woman paid. You do that. I think this kind of really makes me feel a little strange because I also think about a lot of brand owners when they sell their brands, they often go on to do something else. Like, I don't think that it's going to be like, oh, I'm never going to go. A lot of people go back into the business like Bobby Brown sold her company and now she's got Jones Road. So it's a very normal business thing. And, you know, it sucks sometimes, but you have to decide for yourself what you're going to take the L in, what, which side is going to take the L. Okay, Jihan, so let's say Miel changes the formula or they sell out, we can't get it. What other hair oils are you using that you like? Well, I like bread. I like Bread Beauty's hair oil. We, we love bread. Oh, love them. There is a brand I looked online and I think they're still, they might be online. They're very small and niche, but, and I don't know what they're looking like right now, but C-A-N-V-I-I-Y, like Con-V, it's like a cannabis, it's a black owned like cannabis. You know that, like you're not, yeah. you know, um, yeah, that one has a really good kind of uh, hair serum that's like super refreshing and like really nice. That's what I like to use. You could use some old castor oil. That's also <laughs> a, an option, uh, you know. So uh, again, like there are options. A plethora of options. There are, yes. All right, let's move on to our next news item. I don't know if you two have seen, but there's a new celebrity beauty line in town by John Legend. <laughs> Skincare by John Legend. 
the messaging behind it too was like John Legend's new love. And then he like talks about it. And then also he just had a baby like today. No, he just had a baby. Literally. Oh, sweet. Like, oh. (laughs) So fun fact, I interviewed John last week. This man is so rich. The Legend Tegan household is so rich. And let me tell you, because I didn't go to his house. I went to his content house in West Hollywood where they film all of Chrissy's stuff There were robes everywhere. There were cookbooks everywhere. There was a piano, countless magazine covers. They're doing just fine. No, no, I don't think anyone thought they weren't. No, right, 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 right. right. We weren't, we weren't ever wondering. But when I initially got asked to do this, I, I was like, yeah, I'm I'm not, I'm not doing this. I think we've jumped the shark on celebrity beauty lines. Maybe we should just take a breather. They were like, okay, well, do you actually want to know more about it? Like, let me send you the details. And I went because it's called Loved One. And their focus is on melanin-rich skin. And the price point is between $9 and $15. So starting in February, you'll be able to get it at CVS or Walmart stores, also online. I interviewed two Black cosmetic chemists a Blackboard certified dermatologist, and then two editors at Allure tried the products. The resounding conversation around melanin rich as a marketing tool, it was very controversial for a lot of reasons. I'm curious about your point of view on this. Like whether she feels like it's a marketing term or whether it's like a, a there is like a niche marketplace for melanin skincare. Yeah, both. I think it could be both. I think it could be both, right? Because on the one hand, like you do have a community that is underserved and of course you're going to market to them. Like that makes sense, you know, and automatically people are going to think, you know, they hear melanin rich, they're going to be like, okay, this is for me. Like at least you have that entryway point, especially when the landscape isn't as broad. So absolutely it can be a marketing thing, but I think also there is something to be said for, you know, like there are certain um, things that, you know, you're more prone to like keloids or, you know, hyperpigmentation or all of that stuff. So of course, if you're going to make a skincare product or like skincare products that address some of those very common issues, eczema is another one. Absolutely. Like why not? You know, it's, similar actually to hair, you know, you can, the same could be said for hair too. You know, a lot of black hair care products granted, yes, there is that market that's underserved. Some part of it is marketing and some of it is speaking to, and like formulations on like an actual need. So I think, yeah, just right. Two things can be true at the same time. I like that it's affordable and that's another point uh, at CVS and Walmart. Like that's great. So when I asked him about this, you know, Barbara Sturm has hyaluronic acid drops that she sells for $300 focused on darker skin tones. I don't know how they're necessarily formulated differently than her other $300 hyaluronic acid drops. And not to mention, she also has a skincare set that she sells for over $1,000 targeted to darker skin tones. Um, And I did bring this up to him, not specifically naming Barbara, but saying, this exists. And he said, you know, if you are trying to cater to melanin-rich skin, but then it's not affordable for so many people, then what what are you doing, essentially? That was not what he wanted to do. And the brand, the incubator behind this brand called Loved One also made Kinlo, Naomi Osaka's 
Sun Care line, mm-hmm. um, also Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade's Proudly, which is focused on children and babies. So A-Frame is in the business of making celebrity-led brands. So this is not a surprise that he worked with them. I was impressed with the fact that I was going to bring up, well, you're focusing on melanin-rich skin, but unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of studies done on how different, you know, darker hues are than maybe lighter tones. Also, a lot of like what we know about the biology behind skin was done on white skin. So there's just a lot of discrepancies there. And he brought that up on his own saying, we learned there's just not enough research. And so the hope is, is that with this brand, they're going to be able to generate more research and work with not only, you know, other interesting people in the space, but also their competitors, other brands to learn together and help to get this research funded, which I thought was really, really interesting. So, and I was looking, so Estee Laundry posted about it on Friday. And I was surprised by the comments. I thought people would be like another celebrity skincare line. Like what does John Legend have to do with skincare or beauty? Like who cares? But the comments were, we don't need another celebrity skincare line, but we need more black owned and melanin catered skincare lines. And because of the price point, you're going to be able to easily access it and try it. It's targeted not specifically for men. No. Unisex, gender neutral, however you want to call it. Yeah, they say gender neutral in the marketing, but John wasn't like pushing that agenda at all. He was just like, this is for people, people that have skin. Like this is who we made it for. Although I do think it does kind of cater to cis men in a way, because some of the products are for face and body in one kind of like head and shoulders almost. (laughs) So which like, hey, that's great. You got to get something for them. You got to put something in for cis men, bless them, because they're not going to. They don't know what they're doing. They're not going to do all that work. Yeah. (laughs) And like how many brands are there that cater to like black cis men's skincare wise, you know, maybe none. Yeah. Uh, Well, okay. so John actually invested in a company called Bevel, which is a men's grooming line that is catered towards black men. So that was kind of his first foray. And he's been a spokesperson for Kiehl's and SK2 in the past. So he does have like a little bit of a beauty background, which I liked. And he was saying that like Chrissy taught him how to use pimple patches and stuff like that. So he goes to Dr. Jason Diamond and gets facials at his office. So like he does have like a routine. I mean, he is a celebrity man, but I really liked that he seemed to be actually very self-aware. And, you know, if he's going to run a business, he's focusing on an underserved need and not so much a, yeah, let's just put this out to see if I can make some money off of it. Because at the end of the day, everything is a business. Everything is totally made to make money, right? Jihan, what do you have, have to say about that? I mean, I think it's cool that it's the price point being acceptable is really great. And, you know, if it's going to be like right in front of your face when you go to Walmart going to be easy for people to find or I think it's cool like do we need another celebrity line debatable but is they gonna do it so you know you <laughs> might you gotta <laughs> you gotta find an angle yeah and he could have easily made it like $90 $100 plus you know with his name so I agree good for him he could have but would that have been smart No. So the price point has to be, I think in this case, especially when we are oversaturated now by male celebrities or male identifying, presenting, you know, whatever celebrities, a lot of them are crazy expensive. They're from people that you don't think of for skincare also. Like it doesn't make sense. Like for some of 
the guys out here to be selling this stuff because it's like nobody thinks of you when we think of skincare or like any kind of grooming really for that matter. So I think it's smart for him to choose something that kind of an angle that's bigger than he is, right? That is something that it gives you another reason to buy besides, oh, I like John Legend because that ain't going to sell. I mean, it'll, it might sell concert tickets, but I don't know if it's going <laughs> to sell serums. Gian, thank you so much. We loved having you on. You'll have to come back, please. Come back soon. Yes, I'll come back. You guys know where I am. <laughs> thank you. So I'm sure everyone has seen it. All of you have messaged Kirby and me at this point about it because, you know, we had such an incredible interview with Gwen Stefani at the end of the year. It was our first live event. We both have, you know, shared endlessly that we are huge fans of Give Beauty and Gwen. She's so lovely and was so generous with her time, et cetera, et cetera. There is an article that came out in Allure last week written by Jessa Marie Lore, who Kirby and I love um, and respect. And in an interview about Give Beauty, Gwen, as she does, always does, talks about how much she loves Japan. But she made a, a comment that said that she was Japanese, which even Gwen Stefani has to know that she is not Japanese. Jessa, in the interview, writes about Gwen's, the reason why she fell in love with Japan, her dad worked at Yamaha, uh, which is based in Japan for 18 years. He traveled a lot back and forth between, you know, Tokyo and Anaheim, brought her all these goodies. And she just became so enamored and obsessed with the culture. And then, you know, later on, thanks to No Doubt and, you know, her fame was able to travel to Japan herself, specifically Harajuku, which, you know, I think everyone knows she loves Harajuku. <laughs> there are songs there's the clothing line, fragrances. perfume, fragrances, everything that she uh, went on to do after that. And in this interview with Jessa, she said, and I quote, I said, my God, I'm Japanese and I didn't know it. She continued to say, like, I am, you know. And then she explained that there is innocence to her relationship with Japanese culture, referring to herself as a super fan. She said, if people are going to criticize me for being a fan of something beautiful and sharing that, then I just think that doesn't feel right. I think it was a beautiful time of creativity, a time of the ping pong match between Harajuku culture and American culture. It should be okay to be inspired by other cultures because if we're not allowed, then that's dividing people, right? So this obviously went viral and a lot of people were very upset by it. I will say, though, I think it was a very divided reaction, similar to like the Miel hair oil trauma. So this past week, I like took some time to think about it. I spoke to like a lot of my Asian friends, a lot of my Japanese friends. And I want to start off by saying that like, I do not support what Gwen said as <laughs> like as a person, as an Asian American person who obviously like our culture has been appropriated time and time again, as someone who grew up, you know, being teased for my culture, like obviously like this was an ignorant statement. And I think, you know, especially for someone who's been accused of appropriation for however long she, her, her career has been, 20 plus years, you know, it's it was not something that she should have said. That said, do I think she's coming from a place of, of harm 
do I think that she's the reason why people are being attacked on the streets? Asian people are being attacked on the streets. No, I don't. And I think that based on the interviews we've had with her, based on what I know about her and her love of Japan, like she really is someone who genuinely loves the culture so, so much and admires and celebrates Japanese people. Yes, she's made so much money off of them. And like that is obviously a whole other conversation that we could have, especially if she has not given back to the Japanese community. She has. Okay, so then she has. I don't want to speak for the Japanese community because I'm not Japanese, obviously. I think that there is a large community of them who love Gwen. And I've read and heard, you know, stories about them being really not grateful to her, but just love that she put a spotlight on Harajuku style. And even for me, not being Japanese, but being Asian growing up, like I brought the shirts like I thought it was super cute. I loved that. Like this was also during that time where like all of your girlfriends and they were buying like the shirts that had like the Chinese characters on it and stuff like I didn't think that was I was never offended by that. I was like, cool. My friends think Asians are cool. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I felt sort of seen in that way. I'm not saying that like this excuses her comment, but I just think that like she is someone who really does love Japanese culture and Japanese people. And also at the end of the day, like, do I think us Asian Americans should be directing our energy against Gwen? Like, is she our enemy in this, like, stop Asian hate? No. Would I call her an ally? Maybe not. But, like, I just, I'm like, I want to see us redirect this energy to people and organizations and things that we should actually be focused on. Like, there is a larger fight and it does not have to do with Gwen Stefani. I think everything you said is, of course, perfectly well said because it is your opinion. <laughs> this was a very heated topic. I have seen every response possible to this. Do I feel as a white woman, I have space to say anything about this? Absolutely not. But I will share because this is my podcast. Yes, I, I would love to hear what you think. When I read this story, I was expecting something more nefarious than what was said. I don't know if it's because we've had personal interactions with Gwen before. So maybe we just know more than maybe Jessa or anybody else present did. The way that this particular quote was set up to me, it read like she was saying she got to Japan and thought to herself, I'm finally amongst my people, the people that get me, the <laughs> vibe that I want, the style that I want. Do I think that Gwen actually thinks that she is Japanese? Absolutely not. That would be insane. I do. I think she needs to rethink how she says things. Of course I do. That's my thing, too, where it's like where I, I was talking to, again, Marie Lodi. You know, I was like, I want to get your your perspective on this. And she's like, I just don't understand how after, you know, 20 years of being famous and like saying things like this time and time again, like someone from her team hasn't been like, hey, you can't say that, especially in 2022. Right. Totally. And I think this is kind of the point I was trying to make. Do I understand where people are coming from when they are outraged and upset? Yes, because of her consistency over the years being labeled a cultural appropriator 
and saying things like this time and time again. So even though when I read it, I didn't immediately think, oh, this is, you know, this is crazy. This is insane. I understand. And even Jessa says this in the story. She says, I don't believe Stefani was trying to be malicious or hurtful in making these statements, but words don't have to be hostile in their intent in order to potentially cause harm. And my colleague and I walked away from that half hour unsettled. I wanted to better understand why. And that is Jessa and her colleagues' prerogative to feel that way. Mm -hmm. That is her lived experience. So all of that being said, we want to play some voicemails and read some voice, uh, some texts that we received because we had the entire spectrum of responses. I want to start with this voicemail from Jeannie. Hi, I'm uh, Houston on the podcast. My name is Jeannie. I am responding to the Gwen Stefani of it all. So I'm Asian American working writer. In my spare time, I volunteer for Time's Up A+, which is Asian American Arm. Time's Up, I'm also a union leader. I co-chair the Women's Committee in my union. So I spend a lot of time with intersectionality. So with that said, the Gwen thing was really disappointing, but I do think two things can coexist here. Gwen definitely can show cultural appreciation, which is great. Because half the time, Asians are facing visibility. But it's just like from a lack of awareness. It's like, yeah, she can pay homage, but to not know that she could wear the culture without facing the oppression, the lack of awareness, she's also appropriating too. She's not aware of that. So I just think it's very disappointing. And I also think that shallow awareness only kind of compounds the issue because Asian women are constantly othered and exoticized. And whether on what spectrum you're docile or you're the feisty dragon lady, and it only just feeds into the violence that um, Asian women feel. And so, and, um, you know, especially sexual violence, um, you know, trigger warning. And so, yeah, I don't, and I think something else, I think the article might have hinted at that. I think something else, this isn't just, you know, Asian-American, Japanese. Gwen has also borrowed a lot and paid a lot to the Latina and Indian South Asian culture back in the day and her music style, too. So there's a lot to discuss here. Okay, I think Jeannie hits every point mm-hmm. that people like Sarah and I feel. You can show cultural appreciation, but I think the lack of awareness is the thing that I think Gwen is going to have to f- to figure out soon. Because even though she does genuinely love these cultures, you can't you can't make use that as an excuse. Let's listen to this next. Or actually, this is a text message. If Gwen Stefani is so Japanese as she flippantly claims, I would love to hear her speak about her experience as a Japanese woman in America. Has she ever experienced generational trauma from the Japanese internment camps of World War II? Experience the dehumanizing effects of fetishization and yellow fever? Did she ever develop a fear of going outside during the rise in AAPI hate crimes in 2020? Has she ever been mocked with her own mother tongue, ever felt the pain of not seeing herself positively represented in the media? I'll answer for her because I know that the answer to all those questions is a resounding no. And I'll spell it out for Gwen just in case she and her overworked PR team are watching. You are a white woman co-opting Japanese aesthetics for your own financial gain. 
As a white woman who has benefited from white supremacy your entire life, you do not get to decide what constitutes a mutually beneficial exchange of culture, much less sugarcoat your commodification and exploitation of Japanese culture into a show of super fandom. I've seen a lot of arguments pointing out that Japanese people in Japan are supposedly flattered by Gwen's insistence on her Japanese identity. So let's get that out of the way, too. The experience of the Japanese diaspora, particularly in the United States, where Gwen is unfortunately active, have been permanently marked by racism and Orientalism in a way that native Japanese people have not experienced due to living in a largely homogenous country. By virtue of simply existing in the U.S., Japanese Americans are automatically marginalized and scrutinized under systemic racism powered by white supremacy. Jess's hard-hitting article in Allure perfectly encapsulates the sort of anguish Asian Americans experience when we ourselves are not accepted for our identities, yet have to helplessly watch as white people like Gwen carelessly tear into, haphazardly stitch together, and nonchalantly resell our hard-fought culture with their grubby, ignorant hands. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Gwen's blatant displays of disrespect. Signed, Asian American Studies grad from UC Berkeley, which like, obviously you are an Asian American Studies grad from UC Berkeley. That was like so eloquent and obviously very, very, she made so many important points. So thank you for for writing in. We also received DMs. This is a DM that we received says, I wanted to call the Los Angeles hotline with my thoughts on the Gwen Allure article, but got too nervous because people are so heated about this. But this is my take from the Young Turks, and it conveys a lot of the thoughts of my thoughts in a more articulate way. There is a video from a channel called the Young Turks on YouTube, and it discusses this at length. But basically, it is more critical of the story, saying that they felt that this is not what was said at all that context clues are important and that essentially she was saying that she is a super fan of the Japanese culture and that she's not actually saying she is Japanese. This is being described as cultural appropriation, like she's the new Rachel Dolezal or something. And I don't agree with that, but I wanna know what you think. Yeah, so before I read the article, it got presented as, or it looked like, and 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 honestly, this article clearly paints it as uh, she's pretending to actually be Japanese. But no, if you read the quotes, she didn't say that. She was clearly referring to how she feels a cultural affinity to Japan. She never said she's genetically or biologically Japanese, nor did she hint at that. I think the reporter took this as an opportunity to go, aha. Uh, She said it twice, so I'm going to pretend that it's something that it isn't. So as we said, the entire spectrum of comments and responses to this particular situation, I probably personally identify with what Jeannie had to say in terms of the things that we just played, that two things can be true at once. I think that maybe should be the theme of this entire episode at this point. (laughs) Everything is nuanced. Sarah, any last things you want to add? If you have been a Gwen Stefani fan or have been following her, then you know that like, I'm not, again, not excusing her behavior, but like she has said this before. I really do feel like what you said, Kirby, like, do we think Gwen Stefani believes she is Japanese? No, I think she probably felt too comfortable with the Allure editors and was sort of like joking and, you know, shouldn't have said it. But I think this really just opened up 
this larger conversation that I think a lot of people have been feeling about her for a really long time that now she's going to have to really confront. And I don't know whatever way she's going to do it. And I, I look forward to seeing what she does. Again, extremely nuanced conversation. But thank you, everyone, for for writing in and sharing your opinions, because it really I was like looking for all of the people's comments on this because I, I just was like, I don't know what to think. I kind of know what I think, but it's always really helpful to see other people's perspectives. All right. Uh, we have a bankruptcy on our hands and it's no surprise here. It's Morphe. So I feel like I, I want a, a show or a segment called Kirby's Court where you just like break down these legal, <laughs> these legal battles. Shut up. Kirby's Court. I'm going to hit you. Gavel. No. Because <laughs> I'm like, I can't get into the weeds of this. Kirby, can you tell me exactly what's going on? Like anytime I see bankruptcy on this docket, it's Sarah <laughs> expecting me to explain yeah. it. So here's the deal. Forma Brands filed for Chapter 11. This is not a surprise to anybody that has been listening to this podcast or follows either of us. We've been talking about this. This was reported to be happening in October. Rachel Strugatz of Business of Fashion does excellent reporting on Forma altogether. Forma owns Morphe, but also Ariana Grande's R.E.M. Beauty, Lipstick Queen, and many more other brands. Chaplin Hill. Yes. So they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the District of Delaware, and they've been considering this for a while already. The parent company is FB Debt Financing Guarantor LLC has entered a definitive asset purchase agreement with a group of secured lenders. And it says under which substantially all of form of brand's assets will be acquired. Now, Jaclyn Hill Cosmetics has also filed for bankruptcy, which I think you can expect for any brand under Forma's umbrella. umbrella. And I literally just got an email from Allure <laughs> asking you to cover it. And no, it's no, it's literally their newsletter. It's just Morphe's parent company has filed for bankruptcy. What does this mean for the brands that it owns? So I heard this from Rachel Strugatz, but also this is mentioned in the Allure story. It says, it is not clear what this looks like for Morphe and other brands associated, although we do know that Jaclyn Hill is also filing for bankruptcy. But industry sources have told Allure that Ariana Grande is working towards finalizing an agreement to take all operations in-house for her brand. And those sources say Forma has never had ownership stake in REM, but under a licensing agreement that has overseen product development, manufacturing, and marketing, which we all basically knew. They said that representatives for Bad Habit, Jacqueline Cosmetics, and Playa all referred us back to Forma for comment, and REM Beauty has not responded. This is from Business of Fashion. It says... Forma Brands is also about to lose one of its highest profile beauty lines, REM Beauty. Simon Cowell, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Simon Cowell? <laughs> Simon Cowell, president of Forma Brands, informed employees Thursday that Forma and REM Beauty would also be parting ways according to an internal email obtained by Business of Fashion. We've been in discussions with the REM Beauty team for some time about our future working relationship in the next chapter for the brand. And we have come to a mutual decision that the brand will be best served under the ownership and operational management of the REM Beauty team and that the complete transition will happen within 45 days and that they will sell REM's remaining inventory online and ship to retail partners, which include Ulta Beauty. This was a licensing deal. And it says that experts said declaring bankruptcy could be a lifeline for the struggling beauty company once valued at over $2 billion. Wild times. 
I mean, I feel like this is just indicative. One more thing that's kind of proving that influencer led brands are kind of out the door. Item Beauty and Selfless by Hiram are officially leaving Sephora. I got DMs about this from uh, a few people. I asked Sephora employees or cast members, VPs, PR to please message me about this and let me know what they thought. This is from someone on the inside. And this is what she had to say about item. She says, it clearly wasn't selling well and that they've heard Addison's audience is all nine-year-olds. So her huge audience probably doesn't translate to sales (laughs) and probably would have done better at an Ulta or a Walmart or maybe even a CVS. I do agree. Item Beauty feels like starter makeup Mm -hmm. and it could potentially flourish elsewhere, but she does seem to have a young audience. This is also what I heard about Selfless by Hiram from another industry insider who says, I've heard that they're trying to sell the huge amounts of extra stock to Target because apparently there is a giant warehouse full of Selfless products. So let's be real. Like Addison is maximized on her TikTok fame with the Netflix deal and things like that and starting this beauty line. She's still extremely relevant in that she is going to like the Met Gala and doing all of these things. But does beauty make sense for her? Like, what else is she doing that's really like put her in front of the public in a in a real way? Selfless by Hiram, lovely, lovely guy. We had him on the pod when he launched this brand with the Inky List, which made sense. But I have not heard anything about this brand since it launched. And not even from him. Yeah. And I feel like I barely see anything having to do with Hiram. The Hiram mania that happened at the beginning of the pandemic seemed to really, really cool off. So it kind of just goes back to you should not be trying to sell your brand off of the back of a influencer, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I know it's all about capitalization off of being popular and making money while you can. But I think that you really do have to think about the long term of it all and what makes the most sense in terms of these these brands like like have them be investors or like get stock of these brands or something and like have them promote it from time to time. But like, that's what's going on currently. Uh, This is fine. GIF with the dog in the house on fire. (laughs) Okay. I know this has been such a heavy, heavy episode with like all the news, but real quick, we just have to talk about this. Kirby, did you know what a todger was? I had no idea what a todger was until last week. <laughs> I had no idea. And I would have loved to know what, what a todger was for my behind the peens story. So I could have included it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Would have been fun to get some British slang in there. But now we all know what that means. Thanks to Prince Harry, who has been in the news. Just, oh, my God. So much. Non-stop. Non-freaking-stop. Because his book, Spare, is now available. And he is not holding back on any, anything. We now know too much about the royal family and Prince Harry and specifically his todger. So what is a todger? It's his peen, like Kirby said. It's his peen. (laughs) In his memoir, Spare, he shares details about how he healed his frozen or frostbitten penis And it was with a product from Elizabeth Arden. It's called the Elizabeth Arden 8-Hour Cream. It is a tried and true. It's a favorite among many 
Reese Witherspoon, you know, she worked with the brand and, you know, every interview she's ever done, she's like, I love Elizabeth Arden, Ada Our Cream. Another person of note who is a fan of this product, his mother, Princess Diana, which is what makes this story so weird <laughs> because in the story or in Spare, he says that it reminds him of his mother. His mom used to use it on her lips. And then he goes on to say that he applied it on his frozen todger, uh, per the suggestion of a friend who said that it would help his frozen touch his frostbite. Okay. So that was that. <laughs> Can we play the little clip of him reading it? Yes. I mean, that must have been painful. That sounds painful. <laughs> I don't know why he shared this. The And the way that it was like built up in the story, like don't. My mom used that on her lips, he remembered. You want me to put that on my todger, sir? I I, I hope that Elizabeth Arden will capitalize on this and do something really funny. They're having a lot of fun with it. Honestly, they're probably like, thanks for like putting us back on the map. And, you know, I think a lot of younger people are probably like, who wants Elizabeth Arden? So, you know, now they're Googling. <laughs> Wait, this is funny. <laughs> Sworn to keep skin hydrated for eight hours the world's mightiest moisturizer. It's ultra rich in texture to solve a litany of hashtag beauty problems. In another post, the brand wrote, holy moisture, use our universe of eight hour cream products to hydrate and replenish moisture as they protect to win the battle over dry skin with ease. This is hilarious. Yeah, so I'm glad I'm glad they're having fun with it. But the exact quote was, I felt as if my mother was right there in the room and I took a smidge and applied it down there. Sir, why are, no, I don't want, so apparently he told the story because he had frostbite on his peen right before Kate and William's wedding. Because he went to the North Pole. Yes. Like he was serving the country, I believe, right? That's what was, the, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah, something like that. Anyways, Prince Harry, this, I hope that you make all the money that you hope for off this book and just Go retire in Montecito and no longer share these <laughs> details. No, I hope he does a Super Bowl commercial with Elizabeth Arden talking about how great it is. Oh That's my. what I want from him. Maximize. Maximize on this. Like, listen, you've already put it out there. Just, just do it. Like, make as much money as you possibly can. That's all I care about. I look forward to that and the Dunkin' Donuts commercial. With Ben. <laughs> with Ben. That's our show. Thank you for listening. Follow us on all platforms for announcements and opportunities at Los Angeles Pod and join our Facebook group to share your own reviews. Los Angeles was created by Kirby Johnson and Sarah Tan. It is a part of the ACAST network. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Roxy Flo and Stacey Abarca. up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.